Hungry for change in your life? Feed your ambition with Board Bia Talent Academy's Insights and Innovation Program. Get some incredible food for thought with a fully funded master's from DCU Business School. Learn from world-class innovators with placements in Irish food, drink and horticulture companies. And do it all while bringing home the bacon with a generous monthly bursary. Sound like your cup of tea? Nourish your career prospects by visiting boardbia.ie forward slash talent academy. Applications closing soon. Hey there. Enjoying the episode? Pretty good, right? Before we get back to it, how about a quick break to share your thoughts and win big? You could bag yourself a 500 euro one for all voucher. Ready to enter? Head to mypodcastfeedback.com, pop in the code tech and fill out the short survey. Tune across right now? No problem. You can also find the survey link in the show notes. Go on, make your opinion heard and good luck. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. This week we're talking about the gig economy and I'm joined by John Ryan, who's CEO and founder of Gigable. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Uh, John, you've written some interesting blog posts recently, uh, partially on the back of that UK Supreme Court ruling that found in favour of Uber and Deliveroo drivers. Um, And can you just explain what Gigable does first? And then I want to... I want to hold you responsible for the gig economy after that. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, uh, it's definitely a topical uh, area at the moment. The gig economy, obviously, you know, there's a wider restructuring in the economy going on, uh, you know, on foot of COVID and lockdowns and everything else. So, you know, a lot more people were pushed into the gig economy during the last year. And, and we definitely saw a massive spike in, in growth in our, our user numbers and, and the amount of gigs that we were doing. On the what, what does Gigable do? So Gigable is primarily, it's a network, essentially, at simplest terms. It's a network of businesses on one side and freelance contract workers on the other side, uh, primarily serving the last mile delivery industry. So restaurants looking for delivery driver teams uh, can come onto our platform, post gigs, as we call them, which are essentially shifts, uh, outlining you know, the hours, rates of pay, description of the work. Uh, which then goes to the network and freelance contractors within that area can see that opportunity and choose to apply if it takes their fancy and they, they like the rate of pay uh, and they're free to do so. And that's part of the kind of the, the cornerstone of, of Gigable is that kind of independent relationship. Like we provide the, the guide rails and we provide the network and we provide the protocols and all that. But outside of that, there's there's not really any obligation on any party to do X number of gigs or work with X business uh, and they're free to kind of engage with each other uh, in, in an open and uh, transparent kind of a marketplace. So that, that's fundamentally what we are. I think that's fundamentally what differentiates us as well when you look at um, some of the, the commentary in the, the Uber case, for example, from a number of years ago. Yeah, I, I'm going to come to that now in a second. Um, but the figures I have here show you operating in 12 cities with 1,700 active independent freelance delivery drivers. Is that right? That's about right. It's a bit higher than that at the moment. It's probably a little bit over 2,000. Yeah. Is it fair to say that the term gig economy has become a dirty expression? Absolutely. In some circles, you know, the early days of the gig economy was a bit, you know, there was absolutely no structure to it really in many respects. Um, and it was essentially, you know, forcing people into a 
gig economy contractor model that you know really should have been an employment model uh, but but even today like when you, you were describing the pandemic the verb you used was the pandemic pushed people into the gig economy and that's an impression that a lot of people have that when times are tough and people get a little bit more desperate they go into the the gig economy that's the narrative yeah, I think probably that's true when, you know, all of their work was shut down uh, and their, you know, regular employment and hospitality or wherever else they were working. Uh, we get people coming from all walks of life, teachers and everything else doing doing gigs in the platform. Definitely the last year was an outlier. OK, so people were pushed into it. But I think prior to the lockdown period, freelancers on our platform were doing it as an additional source of income primarily. So they needed a couple of extra thousand euros in a particular month to pay for kids' braces or repair granny's roof or something like that. And they came in, they did gigs for, you know, two or three months at a time, made what they needed to make, and then they come out of it again. So it was kind of quite transient. Uh, And we still see that today, but to a lesser extent. Uh, And I think a lot of people really enjoy that level of autonomy and freedom that's within the platform at the moment, so long as you have enough opportunity to meet people's needs. That's the key challenge, you know. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, and that's what I'm getting at here is a lot of the talk around the gig economy is the idea of a regression in your life, of having to take on second, third jobs, this American uh, uh, stereotype that you sometimes see, to live, to make ends meet. I mean, do you think that's a fair stereotype? I think it's very, I think it, you know, over the past, again, as I said, over the past year has been an outlier year. So it's not a good year to infer a lot from, right? But the reality is that if you look at, you know, consumer sentiment surveys or worker sentiment surveys or, or Generation Z uh, surveys, which are, you know, people in the age of 25 or 26, they want greater flexibility and autonomy in their lives. They want more control over their work and they want to be decoupled from one particular business. So that's true, and that continues to be true. And I think that the gig economy was born out of, essentially was born out of the workers' desire to have greater autonomy originally, but it then became something else when people were locked into particular models, working for particular platforms. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the way you describe it there makes it sound like a, a you know, a worker-led, workers' uh, paradise, but there is the other side to it um, that as you often hear, you know, no sick pay, uh, no holiday pay. Um, a lot of the things that people who are in fixed employment jobs take for granted, right? Absolutely. And that's something that we're trying to be a standard bearer of in the gig economy 2.0, if you want to look at it that way. So the gig economy of the past is kind of gone. You know, that's that's it's evolving all the time. And we want to be at the forefront of that evolution. So last year, we launched Digital GP and Mental Health Services for freelancers, which comes par for the course. And we're launching as well in the next couple of months, sick pay, accident, injury recovery, compassionate benefits, as well as family benefits. So there's a number of insurance products there. As you know, insurance industry is a difficult industry, so we've had to partner with people and get those products launched. But we're very, very proud that we've managed to do that, and we're going to be launching those in Ireland in the next couple of months, as I said, two freelancers. Like the, the kind of utopia position that we're building towards is all the flexibility of the gig economy in the way I described it a couple of moments ago, but the same level of security, which is afforded to the individual, not because they're working at a particular business, but because they work full stop. 
how, how can those circles be that that circle be squared though in the sense that part of the trade-off for not being tethered to a single entity or a single employer is the uh, the downside of taking a little bit more risk with things like you know uh, benefits yeah it, it's difficult obviously you know we're, we're living and working in industrial models of work you know uh, out of the fields and into the factories uh, and you know that's how the whole legal and tax and everything structures have been built around that type of reality technology the internet primarily and then smartphones you know late uh, or sorry we say to 2000s when 2010s when smartphones became more ubiquitous and work started to come through your phone meant that though that relationship was starting to decouple anyway and i think you know the gig economy did kind of emerge uh, out of that rapid advancement of innovation and technology so the way like if you look at it if you look at what people want from their employment they want security right they want income security and they want to feel like you know they're not going to be left out in the cold if something happens so protecting if they get sick sick pay in an accident, if there's a death in the family, if there's a birth of a child, these kinds of benefits that come with traditional employment, nobody wants to give those up. But people also want, on the other hand, the total autonomy to work with five or six different businesses, have a variety of people that they work with to earn market-leading pay because you know market dynamics, when they're functioning well, does lead to a rise in income if it's functioning properly. So people want the best of both worlds, and we want to give them the best of both worlds. So that's what we're actually building towards. It's a very interesting discussion on the future of work. It's something that we skirt yeah. around the edges of quite a lot. I, I read a little bit about uh, this kind of stuff as well. My main exposure to it would be in the tech industry, big companies like Facebook and Google. In Google, for example, as you know, um, you know, 8,000 people in Dublin, only half of them are staff. The other half are either contractors or work for, you know, partner companies of Google, either on site or within teams. And the, there is always this question of where is this going? Like if you ask somebody who is employed by Google, it's one of the, one of the staff, would you prefer to be, say, a contractor? Maybe some of them would, probably most of them wouldn't. And maybe you might say, well, that's why they're working as staff for Google. You'd also ask Google, well, what would you prefer as an employer? Do you want to deal with uh, multiple contractors and freelancers, or do you like to have at least a certain minimum of core staff? It, and they definitely do like to have um, a core minimum of, of staff for their own planning yeah. uh, and and longevity. So when we talk about the gig economy, do we? It, it's often contained in some of the uh, activities that you've already spoken about, for example, you know, restaurant uh, delivery uh, people, roles like that. Is that still what the gig economy is to you or do you see it expanding any further? It, it very much depends on the industry and the type of business that you're in. You know, if I would say nine out of 10, if not 100% of restaurants, if they could guarantee the same team of drivers working for them week in and week out, they'd probably go that road. But just given the transient nature of that, the last mile delivery industry broadly, it's quintessential gig economy. You know, people mm -hmm. come in and out for a couple of gigs, as we call them, this week, and then next week they go to a different business, and then they don't do any the following week at all. So it, it's, it's very interesting. I'm not. Have you seen the movie Nomadland yet with Francis McDormand? Not, not yet, actually. It's on the list, a long list. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a touch of that going on. Now that's one extreme in the sense that it's about a community of people, uh, exemplified by Francis McDormand, who have this intense desire for freedom and to travel around the place. I saw a little bit about that when I worked. Worked in um, 
Yellowstone Park in the 90s. It was the first uh, job away from home for a couple of months. And a lot of the people I worked with in that park would go from you know, a national park to national park, it, according to the seasons and that, and they, you know, they had RVs or vans or, and that was a life that most of them actually liked. They liked that life for all of its insecurity. And in the States, if, if you know, that is insecure, you don't have your health benefits, something happens to your car on the road. Um, and so I see where you're coming from in terms of a lifestyle choice. I'm wonder though, has it reached the tipping point? Are you projecting ahead uh, in terms of, how you know a, a wider base of people might approach that like if i look around me it, you know co-workers people i know friends uh people i see people i hear it's not apparent to me that many of them maybe it's a stage of life thing maybe it's a lot of them have kids etc it's not apparent to me that many of them would opt for a gig economy unless they're superstars and you know they're star speakers or you know they're you know star engineers that you know take on two or three month contracts yeah absolutely i think just going back a couple of steps to your question or your your comment about google staff and if you ask them the question you know contractor versus employee you know the majority would would likely say employee but if you were to frame the question in another way where you could say if you could work a couple of days a week at google but also work a couple of days at facebook and get paid 20 percent above the normal market rate and maybe even other businesses, they'd probably say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And still have all the protections of your regular employment. Mm. So it's really about the framing of the question. And certainly, absolutely, you know, nine out of 10 people will prefer to be in secure employment because they have a home, a mortgage, families to take care of. And I said, essentially, I do see, you know, more work going towards the independent path, just purely from the drive from younger generations who do want greater autonomy at their work. Uh, but I do. But when you say that, by the way, um, and I, I absolutely take you at your word, are you referring to kind of research or any studies or anything like that uh, that, that yeah. would indicate that younger people are interested in this? Well, I guess from our own uh, community, it's 26 to 40 year olds are the, the primary cohort uh, with a bit of a skew. That's not that young. I mean, really. Yeah, it's not, it's not Generation Z quite. So Generation Z or Z would just be coming into employment on many of them at this point. That's millennial so, almost hitting Generation X. It's, it's a millennial chunk, yeah. So there'd mm. be a, me- a median skew towards the younger age of that, that cohort. Uh, but there is research out there that does classify entrepreneurship, or sorry, gig economy work as entrepreneurship. And there's definitely a, a surging increase in interest in the space of entrepreneurship. There are studies, Generation Z studies particularly out there are a little bit sparse on the ground, to be honest with you, but the millennial studies, uh, particularly in intrapreneur entrepreneurship, have made it a bit better and more robust and the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor does release a report about the growth of uh, gig economy participation. And McKinsey uh, Global Research as well estimate that, and this is pre-pandemic, that by this year, 50% of people working in Western economies would be choosing to participate in the gig economy for at least some of their income. Yeah, but what is the the the, the context? I wonder to that in terms of how it's interpreted. Is that in the context of having to do that, or is that in the context of no, no, all things are equal, but we just think that this is a good thing to do? I think it's going to vary person to person, but people do have a greater and a wider and deeper levels of interests in things outside of their work these days as well. You know, they want to do an Ironman or they, you know, they're interested in surfing or they've got two or three kids and they want to spend more family time at home. 
one thing that the pandemic and, and lockdowns definitely told us about ourselves is that people actually appreciate more time with family and not commuting and having a bit more control over their day-to-day lives, you know, which, you know, in, in traditional models, so to speak, was probably a little bit missing. And there was a little bit, a little bit of insanity there in terms of sitting in traffic for an hour every morning and, and, and home in the evening as well and kind of not seeing your, your family that much. So certainly I think that people want a little bit more choice, but they don't want us to do it at the cost of security. So as I said a few months ago, you know, what we're building towards with the platform is give people ultimate opportunity. So mm. equal footing, equal opportunity in the platform, but don't, don't provide it at the expense of people's security. So will people do gigs for a full-time endeavor? If they wanted to, they could, they could. But I think as the economy reopens and people go back into regular work, a lot of people will use it to supplement their income more than anything else. I think that that kind of behavior will probably return. And again, I'm specifically referring, I suppose, to the quintessential gig economy space of last mile delivery more than I am talking about contractors in the construction trade or in the health trade or other trades like that, which have their own, uh, you know, dynamics going on in there. And there's just big companies and big funding rounds happening in the U S for medical based gig economy companies. And so there's a lot happening in the space. It's just, it's quite different and varied depending on the industry you're looking at. Mm. And to go back to the original industry we were talking about, which was, for example, last mile delivery, I think um, you said or you wrote that between Q2 and 2020 and Q2 2021, um, overall demand for freelance delivery drivers in the Gigable network increased average pay per hour by 6.4% from 12.50 to 13 30. But one other nugget from that, though, that interested me was it was how uh, drivers earn their pay in terms of how it's measured. And best paying gigs are determined by their profile stats, reputation and rating, which is a model that we see, for example, with somewhat in, in, in other gig economy. Um, have you ever seen the, the Black Mirror episode Nosedive? <laughs> okay, well, it, it, it's an extreme parody of this and where it's a society in the near future where not only do services and professionals have a rating, but human beings do too. In terms of if you interact with anybody during the day, maybe get a coffee, you immediately uh, uh, give them, there's a sort of a Bluetooth connection between you, you immediately give them a rating. And if you have like a four star or above, you get um, you know, entry into the best apartments, etc. Actually, not a million miles from what China's doing at the moment. <laughs> um, but um, that that is an extreme parody. But yeah. there is the hint, the germ of a libertarian sort of ultra capitalist dream there as well. Uh, in you know, getting offered uh, jobs or being paid according to what your star rating is. Yeah, I mean, look. There's a, there's a fine line between being recognized for being good at what you do and, you know, being in a kind of libertarian utopia where, you know, there's there's very little security for anybody. Um, I think there's probably at a macro level, there is a kind of a microeconomy going on inside the Gable platform, which, as you, you touched on there, there's, there's a, a touch of, of libertarianism, which has its own baggage. There's a touch of kind of Marxism because we give an awful lot of autonomy and control to the individual. And in many respects, our whole focus really is on the network of workers. And that leads a lot of our decision making, but also kind of a Keynesian supply and demand conversation happens in there as well, whereby, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships, the rates of pay increase, which is something we track every month. 
So there's certainly, you know, it is a kind of a micro ecosystem or, you know, a replica of an, an economy of its own that's going on internally. And I think that it is important, like, you know, I can't remember the study exactly, but I, I, I can paraphrase and say that, you know, when people are asked if they prefer a bigger bonus or, or greater recognition at their work, they choose greater recognition at their work by a significant majority. You know, sometimes I wonder about that. I, I think that's universally accepted, but I sometimes wonder about the... Um, you know the laudability of that. I would feel the same because the the benevolent way of interpreting that is people want to feel um, you know wanted and needed. The other interpretation is people have big egos, you know, <laughs> and actually they'd prefer praise rather than a few extra quid. Yeah, I, I look at there's there's ladders in society, there's ladders in organizations, you know, employed or self-employed or contracted or whatever, you know, the, the ladders, we live on ladders and that's just a reality. Well, you mean the letters after your name, because sometimes I'll get uh, correspondence, less now actually in fairness, but a couple of years ago. And if anybody's done any professional qualification, any cert, any diploma, any degree, any anything, they put like a whole load of letters after them and then they're outraged when those letters aren't included after the name in a piece where they're quoted. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, it's, all, it's all about differentiating. We need to, like, mm. if anything, there is a high, kind of a hyper-competitive marketplace. Almost every marketplace is hyper-competitive these days, you know, from retail to restaurants mm. to work, to work marketplaces too. And I think, you know, just being being good at what you do and professionalizing an industry and bringing an industry like last mile delivery, just to be more specific, into the light and providing an opportunity for the individuals that work in there to actually differentiate themselves and earn a better income on that regard is definitely, I think, kind of a noble endeavor in my view. But of course, if you go to the extreme ends of that, nobody wants to be rated for every single action they take or, or have their, their career or destroyed by maybe one bad experience working in a platform. So we try yeah. to mix profile ratings with data, what, you know, the performance data, how, like how many times has people done a gig, how experienced are they, but also what people say about them, which is kind of weighted at the lower end, actually. Yeah, I mean, there, there are use cases for all of this, and there's, it, it, there's tensions between these competing things, which is why this is an interesting discussion and why we're having uh, this discussion today. Just let me mm-hmm. ask you about um, autonomous delivery. We're hearing an awful lot in Ireland at the moment. We hear a lot about potential drone deliveries, a few experiments going on. Well, one in main one, Mana Aero, um, in one or two towns around Ireland. Um, what's your own view on the potential future there? Because that would interact or cross your business model quite a lot. Yeah. Actually, I mean, like we're we're technology company, right? But we use technology, and I think about technology in a way that is practical to people to use in everyday life, and, and that's kind of a fundamental guiding uh, principle of of the technology we build. Of course, innovation and technology that disrupts industries comes along, you know, regularly these days and kind of changes it forever. Drones have been held up as being something that might change delivery industry forever once they become, you know, widely accepted. There are a lot of challenges there and there's there's a lot of amazing things happening with drones. And I can imagine in the scenario, for example, transporting blood from one hospital to another, a drone would certainly be perfectly suited to doing that you know cut maybe could cut times down to a fraction of what they might be with somebody on a motorcycle so 100 in, in those terms i struggle to see a near a near future whereby there's hundreds or even thousands of drones uh, flying around neighborhoods uh built you know heavily populated neighborhoods for for food delivery uh, i'm not saying it's impossible i'm not sure if the unit economics of it even would make too much sense 
uh, but what, also, what, you know, what, what, why, why, why does not, not, why wouldn't that make sense? Do you think? I think just the capital outlay would be probably, you know, depends on the model that the business that has the drones are bringing to the restaurateur, of course, and, and how they manage to kind of come up with their own scale economics there. Uh, but I think, you know, for a, a restaurant that wants to have their own drone delivery going on, they would have to, have to tap into a network that has scale in the first instance in order to have the price. So you would have to have a almost instant level of scale there to make it worthwhile in a neighborhood or in a local suburbia. Um, but also, you know, I was watching CNBC, I can't remember the company was in the US, uh, received some major funding for drones recently. And Amazon had been doing this and announced they were going to have drones delivering everything in 2019 and they never did. And that's Amazon. So, but anyway, some company in the US uh, got a lot of money recently for doing drone delivery. Uh, and, you know, CNBC would be very much a capitalist uh, network. And, and, you know, there was kind of a, uh, a Everybody in the in the or in the studio was just essentially saying, "I'm not sure how I feel about drones flying around my neighborhood at night with cameras on them delivering my neighbor's pizza or whatever." Yeah, but we always yeah. say that about new tech. I mean, we 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 said that about mobile phones and then smartphones, and then we said about that about the internet. And I mean, we, we can kind of get maybe get over that bit. But I suppose, and I'm not an advocate of drones flying around delivering food, but I suppose somebody who wanted to uh, deploy that technology, they might say, well, there's no sick pay. There's no issues with uh, all of these uh, benefits or these social contracts, you know, they're machines. Yeah, and if, if delivery was all about get item, you know, A from point B to C, then that's true. And I think in the case, as I said, for example, and, you know, it's just one example of getting blood from one hospital to another, absolutely makes total sense to do it on a designated route and, you know, can, can fly it over there super fast. But I think there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's very easy to just consider delivery work to be, you know, a non-thinking job where you don't have to make dozens or hundreds of micro decisions every hour to help out the restaurateur, but that's just not the case. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be decided and there's a lot of human-centric decision-making that happens in conducting a delivery, not to mention the customer the customer experience of it and the customer's engagement with that brand often depends on their experience of the delivery driver as well. So I think you're automatically ruling that out and kind of marginalizing the importance of people when you take that approach. But look, I'm a technologist and you know, I'm all in favor of technology improving and, and pushing the boundaries on innovation. Um, and 100%, I see a use and a future for our drones. I'm just not sure in which segment they're going to realistically make an impact. Mm, yeah. So just in terms of what's in store for Gigable's uh, immediate future, um, I think you've said that uh, things like uh, sick pay and injury pay, you're introducing that for a start. Yeah, absolutely. We launched a digital GP and mental health services last year, as well as deals and discounts with, with top retailers, which are you know things that people value every day. But you know, true to that mission of providing flexible work, but not at the expense of your your income security, uh, we do want to provide sick and accident cover. Uh, so we're just finalizing how we're going to launch that, and, and I'm hoping to do so next month uh, with our insurance partner. But also things like compassionate benefits. So if there was a death or loss in the family and family benefit as well, if there was a birth or an adoption of a child. So basically looking at what all the good points are of employment and how can we mimic that insofar as is possible in a, you know, an efficient model uh, of gig economy work, which is exactly what we are. 
And, you know, and just, just when it strikes me when you say that, I presume there would be a minimum contractual relationship or working relationship between, for example, a last mile driver and Gigable to avail of those benefits, right? Yeah, we tier it. So at the moment, we say if you do five gigs in a month, you get access to the digital GP and mental health services, so the, the health and wellness package. And we're yet to figure out how many gigs we'd want you to do to get the access to the next tier, which would be sick and accident uh, pay cover. But of course, there needs to be an engagement there because we have 25,000 drivers or freelancers signed up to the platform. We can't realistically cover everybody if, unless they're active doing the gigs. You know, And as I said, that can be quite transient. So we need to figure out uh, and release this in a way that makes it you know, make sense for the, for the community that they're, you know, I'm working on my way up to these particular benefits. Mm. And lastly, tell me about Precipeats. Yeah. So Precip is a, is a company, as you, as you know, a fantastic Irish brand. that's probably one the best known, if, you know, uh, delivery brand around Dublin and also in Cork as well. So we've been working with, with Precip for a number of months uh, and we're, we're delighted that our fundamental network approach has managed to give a 99% fulfillment rate on press-ups delivery gigs in the last few months. And any restaurateur out there or anybody who works in the delivery trade will know that getting 99% completion on delivery work is an outstanding achievement. So, you know, press-up have been, have been a brilliant supporter of our model because they know about the benefits we're providing to drivers. They know about the flexibility that the drivers want uh, and they want to be able to move across businesses as well as work to the hours that suit them and, and their their personal lives so you know they're they're launching this new brand press of eats uh, which is going to be an exciting mix of different types of cuisine all contained within one app uh, and we're delighted that we're going to be the delivery partner supporting that rollout across the country mm, and the signs look promising for that isn't it there'll be business from the off for that Absolutely. So, you know, people recognize a lot of the, the big brands in there in the press up group already, like Captain America's and Elephant and Castle. So they're, you know, they're capturing all of that existing brand identity and brand recognition that they have, launching a couple of other exciting uh, new brands as well, Asian Fusion, for example, within that same platform and, and basically bringing a kind of a universal basket of different types of food and different types of uh, restaurant experiences into one location, which they, as, you know, as press up group can do and probably are the only brand really that could do something to that extent in Ireland. And I think it's an amazing, amazing foresight to have to actually be able to do that and, and then execute it so well as they as they have consistently. So we're now we're really delighted that we, they've chosen us to be their delivery partner. Okay. Well John Ryan, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. John Ryan, CEO and founder of Gigable. And from me, Adrian Weckler, uh, that is all we have time for this week. So Thank you again for tuning in to this podcast and I'll see you exactly the same time next week. Bye-bye.